Welcome to the Unafraid Podcast, hosted on the OKC First Podcast Network. My name is Zach Lucero, and I am the youth and creative pastor here at OKC First. Sitting next to me, as always, is the ultimate broski, the broheem, the Tony Bromo, Bro Jackson, Broco Ono, John Middendorf, senior pastor. How's it going? I'm doing well. Always a pleasure. Glad yes. to be here. I'm glad that we've started instituting our bro, our bro names with each other mm-hmm. in our text messages and every time we answer the phone. <laughs> what are your what are some of your favorite? Uh, well, I sent you some the other day, and I don't remember. I'm, the only one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, that's a great one. Uh, and so, are you, are you reaching for it to see what some of the other yes, ones that I yes, sent you? Yes, yes, just stall. Just okay. stall. And so, the other day, I was, I was thinking about some of these and couldn't think of them until I did, and then I found, okay, good. <laughs> Potomac River. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> What else? I don't even remember. Sonny Brono. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bro Jangles and Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and so if you're a listener of this podcast and you have some good bro names, feel free to send those in to us uh, just however you want to. You know yeah. how to get a hold of us if you don't know how to get a hold of us. Uh, our, we do have an email. Uh, it's called unafraidconversations at gmail.com. What? Yeah, we do. We have an email. It's crazy. We're going to have a did. theme park before too long if we're not careful. <laughs> I don't know who created this email for us, but but we have one. So, wow. so that's pretty cool. And we have a Twitter account. Uh, I think it's at Unafraid Conversations. I probably should know that. It, it's at Unafraid. But, um, Check that out. Yeah. John's going to go follow us because he doesn't like our podcast. No, I think I, do, I think I actually have followed us. I just don't remember what the specific name is. The the handle. It's yeah. called a handle, John. It is? Yeah, handle. Like you know, like a suitcase handle. I know that like that. doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Um and so we have a couple things to talk about before we get to our guest today, who is uh the one, the only Shane Claiborne. Uh we're pr- very excited about that. We just recorded that interview and we're we're excited to show you that. But today we're gonna talk about a couple things before that. One, John, uh, as you're looking up our Twitter handle, would you just uh, give us the latest information as far as OKC versus just for you local people? Um, John, what is the – sorry. You're not going to know what we're laughing about right now. That's just for us because I had to edit something out. But um, anyways, what uh, what is the latest plan, our COVID-19 uh, plan as far as gathering in person goes? Yes, we have uh, contacted all of the people on our membership list. So um, a little bit more than a thousand people connected uh, to us. And we have polled everyone to see if they would be willing to come in at a, um, in a service that would have a a reduced liturgy. We wouldn't do some of the things that are more tangible in nature. We would only be 150 or less in the buildings that we could keep safe distance um, and for the, you know, for the month of June, we won't have congregational singing. We'll, we'll take another look at that for July. Turns out four out of five, a little bit more than four out of five of our folks would prefer to, to watch the service online that we record on Friday nights. And so we only need the one service and we're going to, that service will be on Friday nights. Uh, so we anticipate having a little bit more than 100, pushing 150 this this coming Friday night as we record the service. And then that's the service that you and and Ryan will edit, and then we will still broadcast a service Sunday mornings at 1030. So that's going to be the way we will handle it for these four Sundays in June. And then the board and staff will meet to consider what July might look like. And it might look the same, or we might be able to loosen up a little bit more. But we are we are making good progress as a city, as a state. We're making pretty good progress, uh, better progress as a city, and uh, hopefully also be making good progress as a church. Yeah, the numbers are looking great for Oklahoma City. Uh, I don't know how those numbers are going to look after this this previous weekend. We're recording today on June fourth. This is June fourth, right? Yep, June fourth. Um, and we just, uh, as a, many of you may know, uh, there was. An incident in Minneapolis last week, um, a man named George Floyd um, was killed by a police officer, um, and there was a video that we all that most of us saw, and that resulted in a lot of protesting around the country. Um, I think the last I saw that every state had some sort of demonstration of some kind, which is pretty remarkable, but in Oklahoma specifically, um, over the weekend, we, we had um, various protests. Um, of different shapes and sizes uh, and kinds uh, within Oklahoma City and, and in Tulsa, 
But John, uh, could you describe to me your experience this weekend? Because uh, you, you and I, you and I both participated um, in all that was going on, but had very different experiences, just different um, purposes and things like that. Could you just explain and and share with us uh, all that you experienced this weekend? Yeah. So I was uh, humbled and glad to gather with the uh, several black pastors and community leaders. And um, we had sort of a pre-Black Lives Matter event where we gathered to pray and and discuss how it is that we hoped that the event would go and how we might, as faith and community leaders, be a, be a part of of helping to um, um, I don't know help help guide or or at least absorb and, and be part of the the event, which came off without a hitch, by the way, uh, across the street. And so um, I was there for that prayer event, and then I went across the street where the where the Black Lives Matter event was being held, and and it was it was done responsibly and done very well, and and certainly there were high tensions and and passionate people, and and certainly it was good to hear from from folks who were people of great passion, like Doctor Reed and other voices. Uh, Imad and Chasi delivered a short speech. Um, but it was a it was a peaceful gathering. Now after that event, there was a march, um, and I didn't go on the march, but I think you did. So tell me about what you experienced. Yeah, my my involvement with the day uh, one was just to to be there in support um, of my black brothers and sisters, but also um, I've been uh, helping out Ben Felder with with the frontier here and there. Uh, ben, former guest, shout out. Um, and, uh, and so I was out there taking pictures. And so I was at the, I was at there, I, I look at it as, you know, on that Sunday, the three different phases of, of the, of the protest. Uh, so there was what you were talking about, um, uh, that first one where there were speakers and it was, it was a little more organized, um, actually a lot more organized. And then, um, and then we moved, uh, to the Capitol and I drove down to the Capitol to meet up with everybody and, um, all the entire steps of the Capitol were just filled with people and, um, and it was less organized. It was more, I mean, it was, there were a lot of emotions. There was, um, um, a little more violent rhetoric, um, just ang- maybe not violent, angry rhetoric. Um, and there were some people who I think were, um, the organizers, they just had a bullhorn, uh, standing up on one of the ledges that we we couldn't really hear a ton of uh, unless you're pretty close. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so it was kind of just kind of mingling, uh, around with people in this crowd on the steps of the Capitol. And then from there, um, they marched on to police headquarters, uh, and police headquarters for those of you who don't know are, is downtown and it's in front of the County jail. Um, and so I ended up driving by for a minute and then I went home and uh, I came back a little after nine o'clock, which um, and, and I know a lot of uh, a lot of you locals were watching on the news um, because uh, there was there was a police there were you know, police were pretty much absent the, the whole day. And, and I know that um, from what you've told me, John, that Black Lives Matter leaders and have been talking to the police and uh, had arranged for uh, the police to not have a presence at the pro- at the earlier in the day protests. Um, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and I think kind of helped, uh, keep it from getting too tense. But then once we got to police headquarters, uh, the police were out, um, and they were in tactical gear and there was uh, a lot more, um, a lot more shouting, a lot more yelling. There was a line of police officers at the barricade and then a line of protesters. And by the time I got there, it was hard to tell who was a a protester and who was there to just cause trouble. Um, it was, uh, but it was, you, you definitely could see some that were there just to, yeah. I mean, there were people who, there were definitely protesters there, um, and ones who I'd seen throughout the day. Um, but there were definitely people there who were just there to, to, to stir up trouble. Um, and like, I mean, even where I parked, I, I parked and then I kind of walked around the corner and I was walking through glass of just random buildings that had just had windows busted out of them. There was, um, various spots where there were just, where there was blood on the ground, um, uh, while I was there, there was tear, tear gas. There was a truck that, um, nearly drove through a crowd, um, of protesters. There was, um, it was, a. I mean, frankly, um, I mean, it was, it was terrifying. It was, and I, and I don't 
generally get scared easily by things. Um, especially, you know, I've, I've been on enough trips and, and enough, um, uh, sticky situations that, um, I, you know, it's not that I'm desensitized to it. It's just, I'm kind of used to it, but then this was just different because there was, um, I mean, even throughout the day, there were protesters, um, who were open carrying there were, but then there were police officers who, um, were were very nervous and 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 rightfully so especially in in the evening time because um i know that while i was there somebody had thrown a firework into the police line um which is why tear gas got shot back out um and so and so yeah um i don't know how productive the evening time stuff was but um but i do know for sure like the um that first rally and even the on the steps of the capitol was powerful and it was um I think it was a good moment to hear from people, a good moment for people to, uh, to express their frustration, um, and a good moment for us to just stand alongside us, meaning, um, you know, uh, white folk, uh, you and I, um, we're pretty white, but, uh, yeah, very white. Um, but yeah, we were there to just stand by and, and support. So I, I think like so many other people, and we hear it all the time, uh, when people, are doing commentary there there seem to be there seem to be two different things going on like there is the the absolutely american protest where where people are gathering to make their voices heard to object uh to uh societal ill and then it seems like there's a a switch that flips and then something else happens and and it's not it's not the peaceful protests that are so powerful. It, it's something else. And I'm, and I'm not assuming that some of the people who are, <clears throat> I'm not assuming that if you're out after, let's say nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, that you don't care about the, the race relations thing. I'm not saying that I'm saying that included, um, included amongst those people who do care about all these good things or other folks that seem to just want to, to damage and to do damage. And honestly, I'm not quite sure what the posture of of the church or of the pastor ought to be in those moments. There was rumor of pastors going down to be a to be a part of it, and then there was a call from black pastors to say, "I don't I don't know if that's where you need to be. If you're supporting us, then support us. But going down there and to be a part of that part of it is not necessarily supporting us," which was interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know uh, where I started the day was uh, uh, Waylon Cubitt, who's running for sheriff. Uh, yeah. He he organized a group of people uh, in a parking lot just to like a block away from where the first protest started. And and even in his messaging, he said, uh, if this goes past four o'clock, I'm out. Um, if this moves anywhere but here, I'm out. Um, and I thought that was interesting from from a pretty prominent black leader that he, he he's just not that doesn't represent us. That yeah. is not. That is not what we're what we're here for. Um, that's that's kind of starting to get into riot territory and something different. Like and we're just it's, it's a different message at that mm-hmm. point. Um, that's something different. But I think that's right. I think you're I think you're right to say like it's not that anybody out past nine nine p.m. that between nine and ten p.m. whenever the curfew got set um, that that people all everyone who is out there is out there for nefarious reasons. I mean it's. Um, really interesting to think about, especially in a media landscape that just wants to either just pick a side. Yeah. It's just hard to cover. Well, Shane's got a lot to say to us about this and, and I, I love this guy's voice. I mean, and by that, I mean, I do appreciate his accent. He is in the Northeast part of the country, <laughs> but he has a Southeast accent. Yeah. It's like his mouth opens in a banjo play. Yeah. <laughs> he's great, but he's such a, he's such a kind and yet prophetic voice. And he's got a lot to say about, He's got a lot to say about the the current divide that we are facing, but also about the death penalty and sanctity of life issues and guns. And I think it would be good for us to hear. And by the way, if you are a part of our if you are a part of our um, podcast audience and you don't necessarily agree with the the posture that he will take or the statements that he will make relative to race or or to the death penalty or guns, first of all, what we what we want to say to you is welcome. Glad you're here to be a part of the of the ongoing conversation. Uh, but second, please give him a listen. I think uh, he's done a lot of work and homework and lived experience gives him a lot of things to say. So I, I think he at least deserves a good full hearing. Yeah. 
of course. And just a just a note to to listeners, it seemed like technology was playing defense against us, as uh, defense. As, as John likes to say. Yep. Um, and so, if uh, I'm going to do my best to edit out some stuff uh, as far as uh, our call or uh, our recording kept dropping, and so. Uh, if there's a clunky transition, please excuse that. Uh, we're super sorry. Um, I'm actually not that sorry, but you know, it's whatever <laughs> happens. Uh, what can you do? Yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't be held accountable to every little thing. You know, I mean, it's just. <laughs> what else can I do, John? You know, what else can you do? Indeed. <laughs> what else can I do? Uh, indeed. But without further ado, we would like to introduce you to Shane Claiborne. <laughs> here with author, speaker, and activist Shane Claiborne. How's it going, man? <laughs> I've had better days and I've had worse. We're doing all right over here, man. <laughs> Things are pretty wild right now, right? Yeah. Uh, we, you know, I was just reminded that that word apocalypse, we, we, you know, sometimes we think of it as the end times, but it's more about, the, it means to reveal, you know, and so yeah. we're seeing, uh, I think, some apocalyptic things that needed to be revealed, truth and pain that is surfacing. And uh, I kind of think of it like that Wizard of Oz when they rip away the curtain and it's like, whoa, it's a little old white man, you know? <laughs> because, yeah. Man, it's good to see you. You were here, uh, I think it's almost two years ago now, to, to, you spoke at one of our young clergy events, one of our panel discussions on the sanctity of life, and honestly, we wanted to have you back and talk about all of that and uh, the death penalty and about the Julius Jones case that's unique to Oklahoma right now. But yeah, man, I think we have a, I think we really need to hear from you about all that's going on in our country as we record today on June the 4th. In uh, the year of our Lord, 2020, there are armored vehicles in the street outside of, of the place that you live, right? Yeah, literally here on our block. We uh, we woke up uh, this morning and we were, we were actually going in a few abandoned houses that we're looking to fix up. And uh, we, we do affordable housing, you know, mm-hmm. in our neighborhood here. I, we, I might be able to show you a little glimpse out the window. I can't show you the the tanks and things, but that's our little community center. And all the military is right, right around the corner here. But yeah, we're walking around looking at these abandoned houses, seeing, you know, how much of a fixer upper they are, yeah. you know, and and uh, then my friends like, holy cow, come here, and, and we go around the corner, and there's just, you know, I mean, there's an army coming in, the National Guard, and so there's there's uh, all kinds of troops and military vehicles and and everything on the corner. I mean, I think that's true in a lot of our city right yeah. now. Um, uh, and we, we've, we've just been, we've been through it. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, pain here. There's a lot of historic harm that's been done that, uh, is, is surfacing and, you know, um, it gets quoted a lot, but that, that, uh, line from Dr. King that says, uh, that riot is the language of the unheard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and what, what are we not hearing now? That that's a good question to be asked. And if, if we are going to try to prevent, violence in every form like how how can we do a better job at listening yeah uh and and what 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 uh, uh, what can we do to honor the pain that has been you know hurting our people for way too long can you give us a little bit of context and in in the process kind of tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are i mean you're in philadelphia right Right. I'm on the north side of Philly, but I'm a, I'm a Philadelphian with a southern accent. Yeah, you know? I, so I, I, I grew up down in the hills uh, uh, like East Tennessee. And uh, just one one of the quarantine things we've been doing doing during the pandemic is Katie found out that ancestry or one of those yeah. things is yeah. free. Not the one you got to like give you. I, I don't want them to have my DNA codes and things, but, you know, you can look at your family tree. And I found that my family tree like is I, we are just hillbillies, man. And like from from the Smoky Mountains, East Tennessee. So, uh, so that's why I've got my, my charming Southern accent. And, um, and I, I, uh, you know, fell in love with Jesus down there in the Bible belt. Uh, I I started to wrestle with some of these contradictions that I'm wrestling with today. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like I grew up with guns, grew up, my dad was in the military, 
grew up wanting to be a police officer when mm. I was in middle school, you yeah. know, and, right. and, and so, uh, and I was for the death penalty, you know, passionately had all the Bible verses to back it up. So in some ways it gives me a lot of grace, you know, with, with other people that, yeah. um, are figuring this thing out too, you know, and, and their, their worldviews shifting and changing as they're, they're seeing holes in, in, in their theology, just as I did myself. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit how, what got you to Philadelphia? I know some of this, I just think it's a great story. What got you to Philadelphia? What keeps you in Philadelphia? And then tell us a little bit about why this is a particularly painful chapter in Philadelphia's history. Yes. Well, I came to Philly really to go to school. Yeah. I went to a wonderful school, Eastern University. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of why I chose that school was I wanted to see a world a little bit bigger than East Tennessee. I mean, I mean there's things I still love about my town and the folks, you know, the, the uh, uh, area I grew up in and the Southern hospitality and sweet tea and all that. But <laughs> I, I also, you know, we had the Confederate flag on our football uniforms and in our high school, like it was uh, everywhere. We were the Maryville high school rebels and I didn't have eyes to see a lot of this, you know, the, the, the residue of slavery and racism that still, you know, has a a real mark on our society. So I kind of, I had a hunch. And so I wanted to get outside East Tennessee. I wanted to live near a big city because I really hadn't done that. Um, And, um, and I chose Eastern uh, and my mom said, if, if God wants you to go to Philly, God can pay for it. And so I got a scholarship and, you know, ended up here. I was like, mom, God paid the bill, you know, and I came up, but I also chose Eastern because I wanted to study the Bible, but I also wanted to study the world that we live in. Yeah. Uh, oh, Carl Bart, he said, uh, we, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other yeah. wow. so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, like like the, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about isn't just something we're going up to when we die, but something we're to bring on earth while we live right. on earth as it is in heaven. So that, um, so I studied the Bible at Eastern and I studied sociology um, and I loved it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted a faith that is relevant and connects and a faith that cares about the stuff we're seeing right now. Right. Yeah. And that's what's been so exciting to me is to see so many people of faith, Christians and others who are really their faith fuels them uh, to care about uh, uh, the military militarization of the police, the policies of this administration, the racism we see, you know, kind of in our systems and in our streets. And so um, I ended up here in this neighborhood on the north side of Philly. Uh, it's called Kensington. Mm-hmm. And it's an old industrial town where everybody moved here because there were factory jobs everywhere. And then those factories left and we've uh, got, uh, you know, uh, I think it's 700 abandoned factories and 20,000 abandoned houses. So um, there's there's a lot of financial struggles. As, as we always say, it's a great place to live if you believe in resurrection, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> But but uh, it, it's also a place that I've just I've I've just found the riches of community because community is how people have survived mm-hmm. um, and a resilience. You know, when the stock market was flailing, I was talking to one of my neighbors and he said, oh, our hope doesn't rest in Wall Street and the Dow Jones. Our hope is in Jesus. And no matter what happens there, we're going to make it through. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and then he said, and besides, my people have been there in a recession for a few hundred years. <laughs> so we, we, we know how to get through this. So I, that's a good place to live right now because yeah. these are turbulent times. But, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's, been a hard, it's been a hard time. I think uh, uh, the, we've, we've seen – our city, you know, uh, erupt with a, a real um, lament and, and cry for justice. Um, and it has lots of different expressions, you know, um, some really that resonate with me and others that don't, you know, but I, I think the cry is what we've got to hear. Um, so that's, that's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. I've been marching in the streets whenever I can with my little mask on, trying to be smart too, yeah. cause you know, we're still hit with the virus, but, uh, yeah, yeah we've had, we've had some power, powerful stories, you know, we, we don't have all day, but I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious because when you think about the, the struggle of race and racism, Philadelphia is not one of the first cities that comes to mind. You think about cities in the Southeast, uh, a lot, at least. A lot of folks would tell me, tell me how race has been 
on display or racism has been on display in, in Philadelphia's unique history? Well, we, we, we do have uh, quite a bit of history um, in, in, in history that hasn't been effectively uh, uh, dealt with. You know, I, I believe Jesus is right that the truth will set us free. And we haven't told the truth about some of our history. For instance, uh, I think it was 1972, uh, our city dropped a bomb on a house in Philadelphia, the move community in, in uh, the west side of Philly. And they, they, I mean, there was a standoff with police. There was, you know, all kinds of backdrop to this. But what it amounted to was they set a house on fire and they let it burn. There's a, there's a song written about it. We don't need no water, let them burn. Hmm. And the 65 houses burnt down. Uh, and uh, I think it was 11 people were killed. Five of them were children. And it just didn't, you look back and it doesn't have to be that way, but people have not really dealt with that. I mean, that's one incident of so many that uh, we've got, you know, police uh, violence and, and death, you know, you know, folks that have been killed by police, just like everywhere else in the country. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a beautiful history. We've got the Underground Railroad that came through yeah. here right through my yeah. neighborhood. You know, we've got um, the first AME church, uh, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mother Bethel is here in Philly. Really? and. And it, it started partly because of, uh, well, large, I mean, it was really because of racism, you know, um, African-American folks needed to, they, they weren't welcome in the white church. And so they started their own. And so, so this is a, this, this runs thick here, you know? Um, so there's the Mumia Abu Jamal, who is a, a man on death row, uh, who, um, maintains his innocence. Uh, he, he, uh, uh, was was a real activist, black journalist in Philly, and and uh, that case is here along with a, a whole lot of others. So, um, and these issues all connect. That's why I loved it when I came out there and we talked about the the kind of common thread of of a a reverence for life, right? Yeah. Uh, that that this idea that a consistent ethic of life is something that inspires me about the early church. They were so consistent in advocating for life and speaking out. And um, so the early Christians speaking on abortion, what they said about the death penalty, what they said about uh, militarism and war, and they were so consistent, you know, as they spoke out against violence. They also talked about the gladiatorial games, you know, this kind of romanticism of violence in their culture. So that inspires me. And, and so many people like Mother Teresa and uh, Martin Luther King and others, they had that real consistent uh, ethic of life and some entire denominations, you know, the Catholics and Mennonites have kind of had a theology of that. Um, so for some of us, that's new language, but it's really helpful for me because I grew up thinking pro-life, but really all that meant was anti-abortion because yeah. we really narrowed it down to that issue. And I do care about reducing abortions. But I also see that what's happening right now uh, in our country with racism and white supremacy uh, uh, and guns uh, is all these are these are life issues too. the environment, the death penalty. So the immigration, all of these, um, they raise a question of how much do we care about life. Um, and I'm heartbroken that we have, uh, you know, rows of of businesses, some of them family owned restaurants and businesses that have been destroyed. But, you know, Jesus was really clear about the, the, the when the disciples are marveling at the temple and he says, one day, no stone will be left on another. And he really redefines this idea that we are the temples, you know, the whole scripture is like, we are the sanctuaries of God. So, um, you know, I, it, 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 we shouldn't be able to stand by and watch or hear about this a police killing another person or watching this like for eight minutes, right. nine minutes, this knee on George Floyd's neck. I mean, it should do something to us. This yeah. is a, a child of God made in the image of God who the life is suffocated out of him. This temple is destroyed for, for what? For an alleged $20, $20 check or something. Right. I mean, so, and, and we don't even know about that, you know, but I mean, it's just, it just, oh, breaks your heart. So yeah. I, I feel it, you know, I, you can tell, I can, I feel the, I feel the fire in my bones. Um, yeah. And yet my ethic of life also causes me to believe that, uh, as Dr. King said, you know, 
hatred doesn't drive out hatred. Um, only love can do that. And violence doesn't drive out violence. Only nonviolence does that. So I, I'm really committed to nonviolence, but I'm also really committed to uh, making sure that those who haven't been heard, that we can, we can honor their pain because there's, yeah. there's something powerful that we need to do with that. Yeah. So given all that you've just said and, and given how often all of that great stuff that you've just said that I've heard you say before, it's, this is the reason you're on the podcast. I, I love the way that you articulate your, your prophetic voice, but it is often, and it happens to me too, cast in partisan political terms. How, how have you, and especially as it has to do with race, um, how have you addressed the white person who is resistant to this whole conversation because he or she believes that this is just another partisan trick? How, how have you interacted with those folks? I want to, uh, I think when I'm talking to folks, I want to be one that is really good at listening, you know, so I want to unpack what has shaped their worldview. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that what has happened in America is that we have, and maybe in other places in the world, but cer- certainly here, is that we've experienced the world differently mm-hmm. from one another um, based on our social location, especially if we just think in terms of race. White folks and black folks have often lived a very different experience. And I, I can remember someone saying, uh, our worldview is shaped by whatever we see out the window. And so is our theology and so are our politics. Uh, so I want to, I think what we've got to do in this time, especially as white folks, is have the humility to listen to other people and hear their experience. And that's what happened to me is my window changed. Yeah. You know, I had, I had, I had plenty of ideas um, and, and Bible verses, but when my experiences changed, like I, I had such, you know, heroic stories about the police uh, and this, you know, kind of uh, mystique about policing and, you know, how, and, and those stories, many of them were true in East Tennessee. Um, but I also, I came up to Philly, man, we've had some of our scariest experiences in the world have, have been, um, have involved police. Uh, I mean, I, we, we had one mentally ill homeless man who we were trying to help get into a hospital Um and so in order to do a 302, right, to get someone into a mental health hospital, the police are involved. And they came, put gloves on, cussed him out, told him he was, a, I won't say it on your podcast, but they said some terrible things. I don't mm. even want to repeat. And they told him he deserved to die in the street. I'm weeping, right? I'm like, this is the police. Who do I call? Like, they're, they're yeah. hurting my friend, right? Yeah. And there's a dozen people that are watching. So we didn't have a cell phone handy back then, but we're, we're watching this. We're like, okay, well, I mean, we're so shaken. And then we're like, well, we'll just report it. Right. We report this and all go through all the procedures and it comes found, uh, comes back ungrounded. I mean, later to find out that it's the police that oversee, oversee internal affairs. And that officer actually was named officer of the year. Oh, and you're and you're just like man, this is right. So this is just different experiences. So that I think it gives us, it gives me a little patience as I want to hear someone's experience. But I want to say, but the world, the world is bigger than that, right? And I think sometimes this we don't recognize. Um, uh, a friend of mine said, privilege, uh, white privilege or privilege in general is just being able to choose what issues you care about mm-hmm. and what issues you don't, um, and. Uh, deciding not to care about something because it doesn't affect me is 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 a is a privilege that I think Jesus came to like absolutely deconstruct that right, yeah. which is why he's going love your neighbor as yourself. If 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 it you know you're, we're born again, and so our love is bigger than biology, it's bigger than nationality. He even said uh, even the people in this world love the people who are their friends, yeah. right? Like you yeah. know the people in in our world, like we are really good at loving the people who are like us. Um, And no matter who we are, we're most comfortable around people like us and we're most uncomfortable or even fearful around people who are different from us. And that's what I think Jesus came to give us a bigger compassion, a bigger love and a bigger vision for what family is that now family is, 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 if someone's hurting on the other side of the U S Mexico border, it's as tragic as if it were my own mom my own child. It, it, George Floyd uh, is my brother. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think that connection is what Jesus 
only a spiritual born again experience, I think, can really like give us that kind of vision where you're going, man, I like God's doing something in me. Like I care about people that other people don't care about. That's what we want. Like, right. So that, that's what, um, I don't know. I got a little on a preach there, man, but you know, uh, so, yeah. that's totally okay. You can preach anytime you want. Uh, that was beautiful. And, and I want to, you know, and I, I'll include, it's weird. Like it's weird. Like we thought about COVID-19 for like three straight months and then racism made a giant comeback. And so, where, but what I want to ask you is where, where are some of the bright spots? We, what we found around here is that, you know, we were, we were a little scared of, of COVID-19 and, and it's separating all of us and us being sequestered to our homes and being fearful of each other. But what we have found that it, that it has, we found a, an interesting resiliency and an interesting strength of our community. Um, have you noticed a lot of that uh, in Philly and, and in your specific community and uh, where, where are some of the bright spots? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that they, these things are not disconnected, right? I was talking to Reverend uh, Jackie Lewis last night from Middle Church in New York, and um, she said, uh, you know, w- that that a lot of people had pre-existing conditions when COVID came uh, yeah. of, of racism yeah. and of, mm-hmm. of social inequities, right? And so uh, it disproportionately has affected a lot of people of color, a lot of people in marginalized communities, folks that are in jail, folks that are in detention centers are all the more vulnerable to it, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's sometimes said that when uh, America catches a cold, black folks catch pneumonia, right? Like it just mm. hits them in a, in a really profound way because of all this history of pre-existing conditions for, uh, you know, 400 right. years. So, um, so I think that's part of what made for this perfect storm, right? Where then you have George Floyd being suffocated. You already feel people having a hard time breathing. You know, I think that we were experiencing, and, and, and I'm not even talking about the theatrics and the, the horrific things coming out of the White House, right? I just think that there's so many things that we're building and it's kind of like wa- water boils, it, yeah. not like one bubble, but it begins to steam and it begins to boil. And I think that's kind of what we're in the midst of uh, right now. And but, you know, in the middle of that, it, it's been said that uh, in the darkest nights, you see the brightest stars. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that, too. Man, I mean, I'm just in Philly. We, we've we've ramped everything we do up right now in the neighborhood as far as food distribution. We've got neighbors coming out and mass to f- share food with other neighbors, especially the elderly folks that are vulnerable. We're doing that real smart with new protocols. Like we got uh, our sidewalk spray painted to six feet apart, you know, and uh, everybody wears masks and we're not able to huddle like we usually do and hang out and have coffee and stuff. But we're, we're you know, we're showing up and two, two blocks long, you know, sometimes folks are waiting to get food. And now there's a coalition of folks in Philly that, are all coming together to share food with folks on the street. Yeah. Cause you sort of think like, you know, what does it mean to like stay home and quarantine when you're on the street? And so we, we were in the, you know, in the middle of the kind of the epicenter of the, the uh, heroin epidemic and the, of, of uh, a lot of folks on the street. So a group of us now within the, the, the region, um, like kind of this side of the city, we uh, share about five or 600 meals uh, a, a day uh, out there and our team goes one day and we volunteer and someone brought a saxophone was playing smooth jazz and some like uh, <laughs> other folks set up a, a, a med- medical tent, you know, for folks that need first aid and someone else brought clothes that they're giving out. And all this is in a parking lot, you know, like 50 yards wide. So you're, you know, we're all kind of doing it smart, but so I, I mean, I see all that. I see in the middle of um, this, this, sort of holy uprising. I, I think we see a lot of really incredible things, clergy that are that are walking in the streets and folks that are uh, uh, marching in almost every city in our country, uh, bishops and archbishops that are speaking out. So it's, I get off of this call and I'll be on another uh, town hall around rethinking policing um, in, in our neighborhood. So I think there's a lot of uh, imagination and creativity. Um, and, and people are listening. I think, I think people are, yeah. uh, my, my friend just, uh, uh, sent me a thing. They're in a Southern Baptist church and a, a video circulating, uh, a, a around, you know, having a better conversation about race. And I mean, this is, this is you know, it's pretty, 
pretty cool to, to hear people having conversations that might be new to them. Um, and at the same time, I think there is, there are a lot of people hurting right now. Yeah. And whenever I'm on a call like the other night with um, like several hundred, mostly African-American pastors, uh, you can, you can feel uh, the heaviness of this moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I kind of think there's a, there's a sense in which the pandemic has tenderized our hearts. Like it, for us here, it has made us way more sensitive to the tangible physical needs that a person or a household has, which I think then when this, this whole um, racial divide and the George Floyd situation comes and our streets like yours have, have erupted, I think there is a tenderness there that might not have been there otherwise. Uh, And I'm not for a minute. It's not our theology to say that God caused it, but I do think that God has the creative capacity to use it. That's what I see around here. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of saying it. I've been saying that God works through the cracks of everything, you know? And, and so we, you know, I, I certainly think that we, that, that, that there's ways the spirit can move in this moment, even in the pandemic, um, that we we can we can experience uh, God's solidarity in new ways. We can also we've been doing a lot with the the desert monks and you know what they have mm. to offer us in the time of quarantine because they you know <laughs> some precedent for that. But then you know it was, it was interesting because this was during the season of Lent, which you know for some of the listeners that may not be in the church, you know, the season before Easter, we, we call Lent. And a yeah. lot of times you give up, you fast and go without, you know, chocolate or something. And, uh, yeah. and, and then when Lent's over, you know, you, 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 you feast. And, and so there's <laughs> somebody said, somebody said, this is the Lent of all Lent's. But, yeah. you know, one of the things that I hope is that this period of kind of physical distancing creates a deeper hunger for community. Yeah. Um, and we walk out of it just like you, if you give up chocolate for a month, you want more of it. You know, I think probably we'll want less Zoom calls and more real <laughs> yeah, life yeah. time together. I also, I also think, uh, you know, that that maybe it sensitizes our hearts to what you're saying with with a little bit more compassion because this has hit almost every one of us knows folks that have been a- affected by COVID. So now to to walk out of that and go, wow, like let's have the, the, the deepest passion for life that we've ever had. And what happens in a lot of periods of tragic death and trauma is that, that some ethicists say you get a death fatigue and you, you end up seeing after the Holocaust, after apartheid, after the Rwandan genocide, after you see periods where there's been a lot of death, there's a real reverence and sensitivity to life, which is interestingly enough, you would think after some of these horrific events, everybody would want the death penalty for their oppressors, but uh, that's actually not the case. And a lot of these horrific events, they walked away going, death is our enemy, not our savior, right? Like this is not the solution, the violence, the death, that was the problem, not the solution. So, I mean, that's kind of my hope too, you know, coming out of this. Shane, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the development of Shane Claiborne as it had to do, as it has to do with the, the death penalty and sanctity of life issues. You mentioned earlier you went to school and you were pro-death penalty, even had the scripture to back it up. But something has changed. Your book, by the way, is fantastic on this, on this subject, and it's been read at our house for sure. But tell us, how did that Thank transformation you. take place? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of mentioned it that I, I, I saw that we, we talked about being pro-life, but we would really be more accurate to say it was pro-birth, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, because we, you could, the irony is that you could be, uh, you could, you could be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, you know, and still say you're pro-life as long as you, you, you know, disagree with abortion. Um, and, and I wanted, I wanted something you know, I wanted to be pro-life from womb to tomb. And this is why I began to really address the death penalty and gun violence is that I saw in these two issues in particular, Christians have not been the, the champions of life. We've been the obstacles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, we we actually are the Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America white evangelical Christians in particular. We own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And then on the death penalty, it's very similar. Um, 85% of executions happen in the Bible Belt. 
the Bible Belt is the death belt in America. Um, uh, and and, and the, the death penalty would not stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. So that began to trouble me um, uh, for a few reasons. I, I began to look at some of the holes in my own theology. You know, I mean, we can talk about those. I don't know how theological your listeners are, but, you know, things like the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Mm-hmm. Um, things like Romans, where I said, you know, I saw it as well, God ordained the state with this power and things like that. But then I look at Jesus and I think what happens sometimes is we end up interpreting Jesus in light of these other verses, rather than allowing Jesus to be the lens through which we understand those verses. So Jesus explicitly says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Moses told you this, you know, but I tell you this. And the more I looked at that, I saw that, you know, the death penalty raises some of the most important questions of our faith. One of which is, do we believe that anyone is beyond redemption, right? Because if, if I believe that even someone I knew was a murderer, if I believe that they were beyond redemption, I got a real problem because Moses killed a man in right. the book of Exodus. David killed Uriah after he raped her, his wife Bathsheba. Um, and then he went on, you know, he had a powerful repentance, went on to write the Psalms, you know, so many of them, the longest book of the Bible, he wrote many of those Psalms. Um, So that's why I say God works through the cracks of everything, right? It wasn't God's will for him to rape Bathsheba and kill Uriah, but God, you know, continues to work through the brokenness of the human condition. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist for a lot of his life. He was a religious extremist. He persecuted the Christians. He tried to kill them, you know, and, and he oversaw the killing of the first martyr, Stephen, in the book of Acts. And yet Paul has this powerful experience of grace and, and he, you know, gets blinded actually momentarily. Right? He has this powerful transformation and, and he hears Jesus say, why are you hurting me? Oh God. Right. And, uh, and so that like experience with grace is, uh, at the heart of everything. So I, I, you know, I often say if we believe that someone's that a murderer is beyond redemption, then we could rip out half the Bible because it was written by them. Yeah. Um, so, but there's also, you know, other layers that I think are so important to um, the connection of the death penalty with our history around racial justice right. is, is so important that not only is it the Bible belt that has held on to the, the death penalty, it is also the states who held on to slavery the longest yep. that continue to to try to keep the death penalty alive. Where where lynchings were happening a hundred years ago is precisely where uh, executions continue to happen uh, uh, today. So, as my brother Brian Stevenson said, uh, the death penalty is the direct descendant, right, of, of lynching. We see this kind of, and we see the, the, um, the kind of residue of racism there too, where, you know, we, we would like to believe in the death penalty that we are killing the worst of the worst, but we're really killing, executing uh, the poorest of the poor and disproportionately people of color. The most reliable determinant of who gets executed is not the atrocity of a crime, but it's arbitrary things like the resources of the dependent, the, the defendant, how much money they have to defend themselves. Uh, it's things like um, the race of the victim. When the victim is white and the defendant is a person of color, uh, everywhere you see this, that leads to a, a, the likelihood uh, of an execution by multiple times. So all of that, you know, you see the the brokenness and the, the 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 systemic racism in the death penalty, and why that's so important is that, you know, in other things we we got some work to do. You know, we have, I think we need some massive changes in our criminal justice system, and mm-hmm. folks like EJI and Brian Stevenson, Equal mm-hmm. Justice Initiative, are on the forefront of that. We went to the same college, by the way, and we're mm-hmm. friends. But like he, wrote, <laughs> you know, wrote a great book, Just Mercy, about this. But you know, but the death penalty, you can't bring someone back from the dead, right? right. And that's that's why I mean, you you know, I I it breaks my heart every time I see someone that has ten years, even one year. Uh, taken from them for a wrongful conviction. Um, 
But then my friend Derek Jamison spent 20 years on death row and had six execution dates, was hours from his execution, saw so many of his friends executed by the state of Ohio, was traumatized. And then 20 years later, the state had to release all the evidence and over 30 pieces proved his innocence. And you're like, this is, and, and he didn't get any compensation. They stole his life. His mom died while he's in prison. I mean, you think all that, and you got the same thing right there, right? Julius Jones, yeah. like we've got cases that are right now yeah. happening in real time. And, and people of faith and people of conscience have to be a moral voice. We, we should be the loudest voices, you know, yeah. uh, uh, on, on these issues. So yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. It's 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 a passion of mine, as you can tell. Well, yeah. and it's awesome. And I and I would imagine that you would say many of the same things as it has to do with guns and gun ownership. And your, give, can you give us an update uh, on your beating guns campaign? I, I imagine the pandemic slowed it down a little bit, but where are we at in that in that campaign? Well, I was I was ironic this morning because I told Katie as we went out here and saw these soldiers on our block. Uh, they got the AR, you know, yeah. AR weapons, assault rifles, AR-15s and stuff. And I said, that, we've got those same guns in our basement. Um, they, they're just all chopped up, you know, because <laughs> we've been inviting people that want to uh, to donate guns. And we've been inspired uh, by the prophets, as you all probably know, uh, the uh, uh, Mike and Isaiah who talk that cast this beautiful vision, right, of beating swords yeah. in the plows, spears into pruning hooks. So turning the tools of death into tools of life. Hmm. And so we started an organization called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards and literally like a network of blacksmiths around the country that are transforming uh, guns. So we, get, we take donated guns and uh, we got plenty of them. And we're transforming them, you know, into something else. But we, you know, we started obviously seeing the symbolism of it. We um, are going to continue to live into the future that the prophets proclaim, that we know God wants. And it's a, it's a world where we turn our weapons into garden tools and where it ends by saying a nation will not rise up against nation and people can live without fear anymore. So what I, you know, what I saw as we're doing this work, though, is that it goes to the heart of our faith, too, uh, because you, you think, I mean, here in the United States, we got like 5% of the world's population, of the global population, mm -hmm. but we have almost half of the world's guns, almost half the world's guns. We produce nine and a half million guns a year, uh, over a thousand guns an hour, one gun every three seconds. We got more, we've got almost five times as many gun shops as mcdonald's restaurants wow and you know so we, we and if you look at that you know the the murder rate it's just unprecedented every anywhere else in the world and the suicide rate because guns are much more effective in taking your own life and 90 percent of people who try to take their their life with a gun they do they die tragically but if you look at other methods used to take one's life um they're almost 90% of the people who attempt suicide survive and they actually don't go on to take their own life. So, you know, there's all kinds of elements of gun violence that that's why I think like if we care about life, if we care about, um, if we believe that every person is a temple of God, that every human body uh, is a sanctuary uh, that, that we know that this grieves, you know, God's heart and it should grieve ours. Uh, the number one cause of death of police officers is guns. The number one cause of military service members is not combat. It is suicide. They're dying by their own guns uh, at a higher rate than enemy combatant guns. So all of that, you know, but I think also it was, it's the faith element that for me, um, I, uh, I think the gun and the cross give you two very different versions of power. Yeah. And one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. And it's, it's a very different message that we hear in Jesus, turn the other cheek and love your enemy. than we hear from the NRA and the gun and extremists saying, you know, stand your ground and, you know, don't tread on me. And the, the, you know, these kind of things. So I think we, you know, we at some point it becomes very hard to hold the Bible in one hand and a gun or a weapon in the other. Yeah. Um, and I looked at Jesus and, it, you know, even I think what Jesus did on the cross 
is that he absorbed all the violence of the world. He put it on display and subverted it with love, with life, even with forgiveness for those who were killing him as they did it. Um, And that should change everything. It should reorient, I think, how we live in a violent world that we're, we are worshiping literally a victim of violence. Someone who was born into a violent world as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew in the middle of a genocide when Herod was killing the little boys in the land and that he suffered with us even unto the cross when there's someone dying on his left and on his right, the, the instrument of imperial terror, the, the cross was like an electric chair, right? Mm-hmm. And he, and now God has transformed it into a conduit of love. And when we think of forgiveness and grace, but I think that uh, it should change everything that, that Jesus, uh, you know, as, as one of my friends said, um, Jesus uh, suffered with those who suffer to show us a way forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as one woman I heard say right after her boy was killed, she said, God knows what it feels like to lose your boy. God knows what it feels like to be me. I heard a mother of someone being executed saying, God knows what executed. God knows what it feels like to be wrongfully convicted. And as, like Julius Jones, to be, yeah. to be suffer from a state execution, even though you did nothing wrong. Yeah. Shane, I know you've got big things that you've got to go do. And I, I know you probably need to jump off here pretty soon. We're, can we do an abbreviated set of uh, rapid fire questions? We could talk to you for about an hour and a half. And, uh, Let's do it, man. And, and maybe we'll, we'll do just it again sometime. There's Absolutely. plenty to talk about. You holler at me. I, I'm a, I, I am terrible. I told you all this before at the rapid fire because I've got my Southern, my sweet tea, you know, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Hit me okay. up. I'll do my best. All right. We'll go quick. Yeah. So this is rapid fire questions. America's favorite segment. All right, sweet. All right, sweet. Um, first question: If you, you know what, I'm just going to start them off with a bang with okay. a weird one. Uh, the the most human like name you would name a cat. Wow, that's okay. I know. The most human. Okay, Bob. I got a gray alley cat. My. Backyard, Gray Bob, we call him. There you go. <laughs> Gray Bob. <laughs> okay, now we've all seen the, the concert where the guitarist gets really hyped up and he just bashes his guitar on his way off the platform. What's the song that's most likely to have Shane Claiborne bash his guitar on his way off the platform? I'm having an inner monologue now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you can see it in your glasses, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Do you have a hype song of some kind that you really like? Get you really hyped up? Oh, you mean bashing in a good way? Yeah, I, I thought you were thinking. No, 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 of, in a great like, way. Oh, yeah, this is all oh, good. All I good. was thinking of when, like, oh, I, that's great. I thought I was thinking like when didn't they break their guitars in the national anthem or so? I was thinking, okay, so a good, a good in a good way. Okay, so here's my, um, uh, I, I'm, I, I like the old punk rock stuff, so I'm probably gonna go with, um, um. A little known band called Crash Dog. All right. Crash Dog. Now, that's not a song, but they used to. Oh, see, I'm, this, I'm terrible at the rapid fire, but they sing a song. <laughs> our God doesn't need your guns to bring his will, and our God doesn't hand out disease as punishment, and our God doesn't honor men over a woman. It was good. good We're going to find that yeah. and use that as the outro for this week. We're going to figure that <laughs> yeah, one out. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Shane, if I was going to develop a Shane Claiborne trap, like if I was going to lure you into a trap to trap you, what would I use as bait? Oreos. Oreos. No doubt. Fantastic. Double stuffed or regular? No, regular. And I'm going to tell you, I was I was really skeptical about these golden Oreos because I'm like, man, oh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't mess with my, my normal old Oreos. <laughs> but those golden Oreos, man, they are gold. I'm going to tell oh, you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Last one. What's the book that you're writing right now? And if you're not writing one, what's the book that you're reading right now? Well, how about this? I will tell you uh, that I am considering strongly. I've got a little notes here and everything uh, of writing a book around the consistent life ethic. Um, In fact, I just pitched a title subverting death. 
mm. you know, toward a better pro-life e- ethic. So you can pray with me and think with me on that. I, I'm, uh, I'm pondering that right now. Fantastic. Wow. That is awesome. Shane, thank you so much for joining us. We know your time is precious. You got to get somewhere, but uh, thank you for just spending some time with us this afternoon. Hey, my time is not any more precious than yours, and I thank you so much. We'll do it again sometime. Okay, keep it up, brother. We're praying for you. Hang in there. Talk to you soon. You too. Appreciate it. Yeah, take care, y'all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God doesn't hand out disease as punishment and my